friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy. Cartoon Network is dead. <sighs> Cartoon Network, as we know it, is dead. In a in a update from my hate on the HBO Warner deal, we have found uh, this week in Twitter, we're recording this in the middle of October, um, basically executives and writers from Cartoon Network, like the business, the entity, have confirmed that... have confirmed that since being bought by Warner, the studio has now been folded into the Warner Animation studio yeah which effectively kills the channel yeah now um to be clear because uh, i just googled this just just so i knew what i was talking about it is not that cartoon network is no longer going to exist as a thing like there will mm-hmm. still be a channel called cartoon network um but cartoon network has existed as its own studio for a while. Now it was a studio that licensed old cartoons. That's where you got Boomerang from. Um, and it also created its own cartoons. Uh, yeah. Back when you and I were kids, you know, that was the old cartoon cartoon period of time with your Dexter's Labs and your um, your Powerpuff Girls and your Johnny Bravos. And, you know, they have continued that. Cartoon Network has continued to put stuff out. Um, I know you are a big fan of Gumball. Yeah. Uh, we both watched a whole load of Adventure Time. We both watched Steven Universe. Like, they continued to put out content. What Cartoon Network Studios now is, though, is it's just going to be folded under an umbrella for Warner. Right. So you're still going to see a Cartoon Network. It's just that that Cartoon Network is going to just be another subsidiary of the fucking larger Warner Brothers Studios. Right, and as it exists now, there's kind of this, in in streaming context, it seems like half of Cartoon Network has been on HBO, the other half of Cartoon Network has been on Hulu, Mm -hmm. and was carried over even though Disney bought Hulu, and one would suspect that you're going to see all of it phase into Discovery Plus, because remember, that's the end goal, is to have Discovery Plus be like the master channel yeah and probably see a push on the dc animated properties probably see less of the more original stuff there there's been a thing on twitter and and i'll try to find some of these threads for you know lhr's twitter but people have been taking the little guy shows that had a lot of heart but kind of only existed in Cartoon Network like Craig of the Creek and Infinity Train and stuff that is newer and not so well known but really wonderful and like posting entire Google Drives of just here's every episode because we just want this property to exist and we're afraid it's not going to if we put our hands in the HBO streamers. Yeah, and I mean that's and and since since our conversation on the HBO Max thing, um, something that has come to light is that a big factor oh we talked about this a little bit but you know a lot of what they're cutting on the hbo max side and a lot of what they're ultimately going to be cutting on the warner brothers in general just just that entire media catalog is shit where they have to pay out certain residuals 
to creators. Right. And it's it's this question of, all right, what is the profit margin on X TV show? And is the profit margin such that the people who are actually watching it are bringing in what we can verify is enough money to justify the amount that we also have to pay out in residuals year after year to the people who created it? I'm thinking about Steven Universe. Yeah. Um, which very famously is a creation of Rebecca Sugar. And I do not know what Rebecca Sugar's contract is on Steven Universe. I am pretty sure that Rebecca Sugar had to make more compromises on Steven Universe than, say, Jendi Tartakovsky had to make on some of his later Cartoon Network shows. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jendi Tartakovsky was a creator who worked on shows like Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, but also Samurai Jack. And Jendi Tartakovsky, I'm pretty sure, as he continued to churn out really good, really successful shows for Cartoon Network, probably got better and better contracts. Sure. I imagine we might not see Steven Universe go away because Rebecca Sugar, I think, for as successful as Steven Universe was, and maybe in later seasons, you know, she got better contracts, but I imagine her syndication contract probably isn't as good as Jendi Tartakovsky's on the Samurai Jack remake. Because attaching his name to that and, and using his intellectual property for whatever the fuck that means, because I'm pretty sure Cartoon Network definitely owns that trademark, yeah. it, it's, it's going to be a different kind of thing. But the fact that they're just taking that material off. Every show I just listed is a Cartoon Network property. I don't know what's going to happen to that material. Yeah, and we, you know, we kind of touched on this. I'll, I'll say it again. The state of modern... Western animated cartoons is really in kind of a, a tenuous, scary place for people who have new and original ideas and want to tell these kinds of stories. There's the the avenues for showing them are diminishing more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, um, it's almost at the point where you maybe have better luck trying to just post something to YouTube, but mm -hmm. I know shows and people who have tried to basically crowdsource that, and you you just can't yeah. do a cartoon without major financial backing, yeah. and the major financial backers are all really tightening their coin purses, and, uh, and animation is the first victim. Yeah, and, and the thing of it is, like, to a certain extent, I think adult animation suffers from this less. Sure. Because adult animation, I don't know, for whatever reason, it um, has, it, it captures a zeitgeist in a different way. And maybe it's because the people who are watching it are the people actually paying the bills for the subscriptions. Oh, I absolutely think so, yeah. Whereas with children's media, it's all about how do we sell merch? How do we sell merchandise? You can I, I I can go online right now and 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 I'm just to pull something out of the ether. Um, I think of like Gumball, which I think is still running. I think that show is still running. Uh, maybe yeah. Maybe uh, maybe not. But I guarantee you, I can go into Target and there'll be Gumball toys, and kids will buy them. Hell, Bluey, which is for even a younger audience than that. And you know my my niece loves Bluey. My godkids love Bluey. We absolutely bought Bluey merch for my niece's last birthday and gave that to her. Like, 
Bluey is marketing. Right. I saw a Bluey costume at Spirit Halloween. Like, yeah, that is like something that you can sell merch for. Yeah. So, and that then that's kind of been an issue for Cartoon Network over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years is definitely, you know, we've talked about this on the show. They canceled a show that you and I both love, Young Justice, in, in favor for the Teen Titans Go cartoon. Mm-hmm. Now, I like Teen Titans Go, but the explicit reason for that was because they wanted a show with, quote, goofy boy humor because, quote, boys buy toys. Right. And it's not that there wasn't merch on Young Justice, but Young Justice was a show that had more mature themes, a seasons-long story arc that you really kind of have to watch the show from episode to episode to follow properly because it's spider webs in multiple directions. Yeah. And, you know, you and I are doing a rewatch of it, and we're only in season two, but they're still spider webbing back to shit from season one. And, and like, planning out seeds that were planted then are still fruitioning now throughout this time. And I get why that's not as marketable as however many fucking Funko Pops you can make out of various versions of Robin's costume. Sure. But... Getting back to the idea that Cartoon Network being folded under this Warner Brothers umbrella, Cartoon Network as an independent studio let people like Rebecca Sugar do the shit that she did. And it let people do, frankly, weird-ass shows that had merchandising value. I think of Adventure Time. The merch value on Adventure Time is enormous. Adventure Time is bigger than any show we've mentioned so far. And Adventure Time is weird as hell. And can you argue it's goofy boy humor? Sure, on a number of the episodes and on a number of other ones, it's like, oh, is this a giant metaphor for Alzheimer's? <laughs> right. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. But what happens, it's not that Cartoon Network wasn't a big studio, but what happens when it goes under the studio umbrella of fucking Warner? Yeah. It's frustrating when, like, we can already predict, the shows that are going to come out in the wake of this are going to take fewer risks. They're going to be more about merch. Ironically, it's, yeah, like, there's a better chance we will get more and more Young Justice just because, like, DC superhero properties are in and we'll probably get, like... Well, we've got, like, two more seasons of Young Justice on streaming. Right, I just mean continued marketing. Like, yeah. I know um, the Matt Reeves, the Batman animated show um, got killed, but we're probably going to get, you know, the 80th Batman show. We're probably going to probably watch in like three years, we get like some new continuity Justice League shit, and they're going to try and tie that into the Black Adam movie somehow. Sure. It's, it's all of the things that we've lamented about before, but just wanted to give an update on that. Uh, God, animation is probably among the arts, which are already tenuous and, like, jerked around way too much. Animation has probably got the shortest stick right now. And that's that's sad to see just for creative types. But, yeah. I don't know, hopefully we get a good union or something. That's, that's about <laughs> all the 
hope I can muster. That and um, y'all, if you can, if you care about any of this media, fucking try and buy it physically if you can, because try and buy it physically. Find creatives Patreons, because I guarantee that they have them, and just yeah. try to actually hand them money. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of creatives and what they do with the tiny amounts of money that they are given, um, that'll that'll have to do with our first topic. But first, welcome to Love Hate Relationship, everyone. Um, our format is pretty simple. After an initial douchebag buffer, wherein we talk about whatever the fuck comes into our minds, uh, we go into three segments: one in which we talk about something we love, one in which we talk about something we hate. Uh, and then we take a relationship question from either you, our lovely audience, or the internet. And this time, Andy, you've got a love that I am very, very interested in talking about. I do have a love. And once again, a topic that I'm shocked it took us nearly 100 episodes to get talking about. Something that is near and dear to both of our hearts. But I want to talk about why I love the slasher film. I'm here for this. I talked about rom-coms, and you're talking about slashers. Very, very ironically topical. I'm going to shoehorn similarities between the two into this conversation. You know what? I'm not mad about that. All right. Um, but first, you know, I, I, I want to say the humble, humble slasher film... I know is something is very near to your heart. It's one of the first things we ever talked about, like as friends. Yep. And I want to say, do you? What do you think is the first one of these you ever watched? It is really, really hard for me to say because um, I've talked about this on the show before. Uh, my parents didn't really restrict what I watched too terribly much. Um, you know, there was. I, I, I've said this. There's literally not a time in my life that I don't remember having seen The Exorcist. Sure. Which is not a slasher, but one would argue is probably not something that someone whose earliest memories are four, and at four, I remembered The Exorcist. Yeah. Like, there's never been a time where I hadn't seen that particular movie. Um, as far as slashers are concerned, um, I'm pretty sure... I remember early in my life probably seeing swatches and bits of like the first couple nightmare on elm streets um the first um friday the 13th movies uh and even halloween which we're going to talk about in this but the first one that i remember sitting down and like me myself watching all the way through was scream okay I don't know if that's the first slasher I ever saw. Sure. But it's the first one, because I remember we rented that movie, because my sister wanted to watch it. And we sat down, and we watched Scream all the way through, and I didn't understand... And I remember, at the time, being familiar with some of the movies that they reference in Scream, because in Scream they talk about Halloween, and they talk about Friday the 13th. And I remember being like, oh yeah, I remember who Michael Myers is, I remember who Freddy Krueger is... But I don't think I had the reference of having seen those movies, which is why I th probably think Scream was maybe the first slasher movie that I watched all the way through. Okay, okay. What about you? <laughs> so not to derail us, because this, this is a question I have for the end of this, but probably the first one I can think of, and we'll have to get into if this even counts, is Predator. I don't count that. Well, fair enough. We can, we can litigate that later. My my dad, who was the one who was you know buying movies and deciding what we watched, never cared. I didn't see 
any of the Fridays or the Nightmares or the Halloweens until I was in high school. Interesting. Okay. So, if not Predator, then 2000's Pitch Black, which is, again, a sci-fi horror movie in which a bunch of aliens kill people. Yeah, I don't consider that a slasher. So, so you know what? Fine. <laughs> the, the first one that is, like, of the prototypical okay. that I know I've seen was actually the Rob Zombie Halloween. Okay. All right. I'm not mad about that. A lot of Halloween fans shit on the Rob Zombie Halloweens. I actually like them. Sure. I don't like them as much as I love the John Carpenter original, but I like them. Absolutely. So, to kind of touch on that and get into it, to pull a definition in which the core plot revolves around a menacing figure of some kind, often masked or otherwise mysterious in some way, killing a group of victims one by one, usually with a bladed weapon of some kind, which is what gives the genre its name. Mm -hmm. You get slashed with a machete or a kitchen knife or finger gloves. There you have it. Finger gloves with blades on them, let's be clear. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the subgenre reached its height of popularity in the 80s and early 90s, giving us such cultural icons as Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Leatherface, Ghostface, and Chucky. Indeed. Slashers have often been known for their relatively low budgets, contrived plots and characters, and gratuitously gory and over-the-top kills. I think that's a pretty succinct and solid definition. Obviously, there are variations in all of that, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, and so, like, part of the thing that fascinates me about the slasher subgenre is the argument one can have for what counts and what doesn't. Listeners, you just heard us, like, we clearly have a difference of opinion on science fiction murder horror because, like, a masked figure kills a bunch of dudes with a blade is Predator, Add in the fucking plasma cannon and, and like. <laughs> You're one ugly motherfucker. But, but we'll, we'll, again, we'll touch on that back. The other thing is it's actually really difficult to pinpoint the original slasher film mm -hmm. because, like, the key tropes we've discussed aren't super unique and have been appearing in films for almost as long as films have been being made. In doing research, I discovered that there's a 1926 silent film called The Bat, um, which features a group of people being stalked and murdered in a mansion by a killer in a mask. Mm -hmm. Literally, that is like when you're writing a slasher, that is the first thing you write down on your idea board. Sure. Killer person stalks people in a mask. Yeah, okay. Several, you know, drive-in B-movies of the 50s and 60s could also be called slashers. Um, the most notable ones that I was looking at was 1953's House of Wax, which mm -hmm. a lot of people will remember for actually the really garbage, like, remake. 2003 remake. With Paris Hilton. With Paris Hilton and Jared Padalecki. Mm. Um, and the Vincent Price franchise, The Abominable Dr. Fives. Oh, I forgot about that one. And oh, I'm glad you've seen it then, because I was I was such a Vincent Price mega fan for like a year that I just sought out this shit. And the Abominable Doctor Fives I can only describe as it saw 
but it's made in the early 70s. Yeah, I think I think that. My, my sister was a big Turner Classic Movies person. Okay. So, and I remember when we got that channel, I remember they would have the, like, Turner Classic Horror yeah, sure. Hour or whatever it was. And at, at a certain point on, like, I think it was, like, Thursday nights, they would show some classic horrors. And I remember seeing, I didn't know it was a franchise. I think I only saw one of them. Sure, a lot of people did. There's there's like three or something. They literally do the thing where like he dies at the end of the first one and then he's a fucking zombie monster thing. Sure, okay. Um, really, really beloved, really interesting movie just because like it's bad in the way an early 70s film is bad. Yeah. But it's Vincent Price and they do some really like creative shocking kills. I enjoy it. Okay. Um, so the other like thing the other big thing is the popularity of alfred hitchcock horror films particularly sure. psycho yes you know which is another film with a very heavy argument to it about if it is the grandfather of the slasher film because that's another one that spawned dozens of cheap sequels as well as like knockoffs and spin-offs of the concept of scary guy with a knife kill some people sure um that are arguably slasher thrillers and I'm not even going to touch on the hyper gory splatter film gore uh, grindhouse phase mm-hmm. that went through American and Italian cinema throughout the 70s because that's I, we're going to get way into the weeds if we try and talk about that. Yeah. So, um, and I know you're going to get into this, but um, this is probably how I would enter into that question. Sure. And I'm going to use a metaphor here because okay. I'm fond of it or, or an allegory uh, or a parallel, a parallel. Um, I've talked to you about the idea of um, the or the argument of what the first heavy metal band was, right? Yes. Okay. So there is a lot of debate among music people as to what what is the first heavy metal band or heavy metal song. And there are people who go back to like fucking Blue Cheer and their cover of Summertime Blues because of the distortion in it. They make the same argument for the kinks, and you really got me with the distorted guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who argue that Iron Butterfly and Inagata Devita is kind of the first heavy metal song. But a very interesting lens that I have seen applied to it is people go, all right, what is the very last music act that you can get where after this point, no one can say that heavy metal does not exist? Oh, okay. The answer to that is 1970 Black Sabbath. No one will argue after Black Sabbath. People might argue whether or not Blue Cheer in 68 counts as heavy metal. Sure. But no one, absolutely no one is going to say, yeah, no, Black Sabbath, that's that's not heavy metal. Like, heavy metal didn't happen until two years later. They might say two years earlier. They might say five years earlier. They might say ten years earlier. No one is going to say later. Okay. So, applying a similar lens to... The slasher film. I think I I have not seen this nineteen the bat. I have not seen that. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Um, so I, I would I would be interested to take a look at that. But if you're gonna ask me this question and I'm gonna apply that lens, I am someone who thinks that Psycho doesn't really count as a slasher, but is kind of a proto slasher. Yeah. Much like a blue cheer is like proto metal. Um, to me. The earliest horror movie that could be qualified, the point at which you will say, no, there is definitely, after this movie, we definitely have slashers. There is no more argument. 
That is probably Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Absolutely. In 74. Yes. Maybe you can argue it started sooner than that, but no one will argue it started later than that. I completely agree, and that is, like, that is my opinion on it, and I think that is, like, the general consensus of people who bother to care about such a thing. Sure. But dorks. Yeah. yeah, dorks, absolutely. Try anything and you cancel, bro. It is generally agreed that the first slasher film, to, I, I love that allegory, by the yeah. way. I, I love that way of thinking about it. We're like, no one is going to argue that Leatherface is not a slasher. Yeah, and the only people who argue that later slashers are the original are people who forgot that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in 74, as I have forgotten that at times. Right, absolutely, yeah. It's 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which if you actually watch, for people who've not seen it, it is, it is a very, like, experimental... It was called an art house film of mm -hmm. the time because of, like, the, the stuff they did with film color and, and just the way it was presented. But nonetheless, it laid the foundation for so many tropes. The monstrous masked killer with a gimmick. The group of young people who get picked off one by one. The final girl, Survivor, which mm -hmm. became like its own super trope of the final girl. The only other film that I have heard called the father of the slasher is Black Christmas, which is a Canadian horror film, which actually has all of the same tropes. You mm -hmm. have a killer with... Um, a killer with a gimmick. You have the call is coming from inside the house. You have mm -hmm. a bunch of sorority girls getting murdered. Yeah. But, and I had, I had to dig to find this, that came out two and a half months later than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So if I, you want to stick a pin in it and win this trivia question, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw came out October 1st, 1974 and is like the definitive slasher film. Yeah. I, and you know what? I am not mad about I don't get mad when people say they think Psycho is the first slash. Sure. I really don't. I don't agree, but I understand. Mm -hmm. I, I would squarely put that with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and here's the thing. like You mentioned Black Christmas two months later. Halloween, which is my favorite slasher right. and my favorite slasher franchise, is an open ripoff of Black Christmas. John Carpenter has admitted this in interviews. He was like, okay, the gimmick is scary holiday movie. The gimmick is we've got a mysterious figure who we don't see that well and we, we get a backstory on, but is just kind of this menacing figure that's stalking mostly young women. All right, we're going to rip off Black Christmas here. Sure. Like the, and, the, and Friday the 13th was a ripoff of Halloween and Black Christmas because they were literally like, what's another scary holiday? Yeah. Like, straight up. But I, and, and I will always say with Halloween, it codified so many of the tropes yes. of a slasher movie. Because Texas Chainsaw, like, yes, you have, your, you have your masked monster with a gimmick. Um, but if I remember Texas Chainsaw, there's not as much of the stuff you get in Halloween where you think the killer is dead and they, surprise, they're actually not. No, absolutely. Texas Chainsaw actually, again, it gets really fucking weird. Mm -hmm. And it's, it becomes more about yeah. the cannibal family yeah. and, and just weird gross-out yeah. humor. Yeah, it doesn't have, I don't think Texas Chainsaw has the teens fucking 
aspect. No. That Halloween accidentally made a trope because they weren't right. meaning to do that, but it became a it became a thing moving forward. It Halloween solidified so many of these things. And apology real quick, literally the next thing I've written down, the golden age of slashers definitively began with 1978's Halloween. And I know I would be doing wrong by you, Alex, not to let you expound on that for a moment. Oh. So now that you've expounded, what else you got? <laughs> Oh, God. Long-time listeners to the show know this is one of my favorite movies. It is a top three movie for me at times. You you catch me at the wrong point of day or the right point of day. Um, it might be my num- my top one favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. I love Halloween so much. The interesting thing, because I have shown Halloween to a handful of people who I, who I care about who have never seen it before... And the interesting thing is, for a lot of people, especially ones who are familiar with the tropes of slasher films, maybe have even seen later slasher films, Halloween feels very tame and very dated. There's only four kills in the whole movie. It has all of the usual tropes. And it's kind of because it invented those tropes. Again, it's a lot like listening to the first couple of Black Sabbath albums. And you're just kind of sitting here going like, okay, well, I'm used to Iron Maiden or I'm used to Cannibal Corpse. I don't see what's so... Or I'm used to Pantera. I don't see what's so heavy about this. And it's putting it in that context of the period that it came from. It created those tropes. Right. It created a lot... Texas Chainsaw didn't have the super crazy kills. It didn't have the crazy kills. It doesn't necessarily have the stalker yeah. who is invading your space. Yeah. It, it's, it, it takes place in the family ranch that, like, I, I can't remember the, the Leatherface family name, but, like, the cannibals own. Yeah. It's, it's people invading their space. As opposed to Halloween, you have Michael invading yeah. Laurie Strode. Now, again, I think about Black Christmas. Have you seen Black Christmas? I have not seen Black Christmas. I have watched video essays about Black Christmas. Black Christmas is great. The remake, I actually defend. I, I really, really like the remake. The the But Black Christmas had a little bit of the creative kills. Yeah. Black Christmas, you could also make an argument that it's a little bit of a haunted house movie. Sure. Like, granted, your killer is not really in any way supernatural, but it's like a killer who is stalking around inside the walls of this house, um, which is a very kind of scary concept. And you're right, it's with a bunch of sorority girls. It's, it, 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 it is a bridge between um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween, despite the fact that, again, like, Halloween was not explicitly ripping off Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was explicitly ripping off Black Christmas, and by all accounts, Chainsaw and Christmas were done independently of one another. They weren't trying to... Like, they were being produced at the exact same time. No, absolutely. But what Halloween did was institute what your standard is. From there forward, everything is either copying Halloween or it is copying something else. Something that copied Halloween. Or it is an outright twist on the subject. So you get to Friday the 13th Part 2. Because Friday the 13th Part 1 is a different monster. Sure. No pun intended. Um, You get to Friday the 13th Part 2, which is the first appearance of Jason. Anyone who's seen Scream should know that. Um, And Jason is a blatant Michael Myers ripoff. He's got a machete instead of a kitchen knife. 
He's got a burlap sack instead of a spray-painted William Shatner mask. Um, later to be replaced with a hockey mask. Yeah. Um, he's big. He moves... In Halloween, Michael does not necessarily move fast or slow. He moves kind of imposingly. Sometimes he's walking. Sometimes he's running. Um, he's he's not slow, but he is unstoppable, which is the yes, terror. Yes, and same thing with Jason. It's it's a large, imposing, freakishly strong character who you think is killed and always comes back up. Jason is a blatant Michael Myers ripoff. Yeah, absolutely. Freddy Krueger is a definitely takes things from that, but is a blatant rejection. Freddy cracks jokes. Freddy talks. Uh, if you watch the first Nightmare movie, he's a lot less jokey than he is yeah. in the later ones and a lot less talkative than he is in the later ones, but he still taunts and is, is, is a rejection of the silent mask. Yeah, and so, like, to take that, Chucky is, like... Is more Freddy. Is very much more Freddy. Yeah, absolutely. So, 1978 gives us Halloween, and the following decade of horror is, like, obsessed with giving us this kind of format and gives us an established John Carpenter, Wes Craven, Jason, Freddy, Michael, all of your favorites, along with dozens, if not hundreds, of horrible imitation films that would play at drive-ins or collect dust on the shelf at Blockbuster. For our new, our younger vis- uh, listeners, to bring that analogy into modern day, uh, are available for streaming on Tubi TV and Voodoo. <laughs> I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of Pumpkinhead, which you and I talked about the other day. Yeah, like your, your pumpkin heads and just a lot of stuff where it's like uh, Sorority Chainsaw Massacre or The Knife and just shit that like never becomes franchisable but was made for really cheap. Yeah. You know, the genre flagged was revived in the mid-90s by stuff like Wes Craven's New Nightmare and, more importantly, Scream. Yes. Flagged again, entered a period where literally everything was just being remade. House of Wax, The Hills Have Eyes, Freddy, Jason, everything um, flagged again. And now, I would argue, in the early 2020s, is going through yet another renaissance with films like Ty West's X Trilogy and the Terrifier franchise being very notable, like, oh my God, slashers are new and fun and creative and, like, must-see cinema again. Hmm. I'm intrigued by this. Well, and it's funny because in some ways, some aspects of this haven't gone away. Sure. You and I watched the Halloween remake. Not remake, like... Pseudo sequel reboot. Jamie Lee Curtis came back. They're ignoring the entirety of the rest of the Halloween franchise except for the first movie. It's a direct sequel to the first one, which I have to say, as a lifelong Halloween fan, is very weird for me because I've watched, I watched Jamie Lee Curtis's character die, come back in Halloween H two O, and then just like, and and then for us to ignore all of that and. it, there's, it, there's like four different Halloween timelines. Uh, literally. There's a whole Cracked article about it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we also, you and I just watched a video essay about the rebooted um, 
Friday the 13th movie that came out in 2009, which granted is some years ago now. Um, and that's the last Friday the 13th movie we've gotten. And that remake was kind of a weird blend of the first four movies. Yeah. Being told in a like ninety-seven movie, ninety-seven minute movie, um, which when you pitched that to me is stra- sounded really strange, and I kind of hated it. But then when I actually watched this video essay, I was like, I kind of want to watch this now. Um, you and I both loved the new Candyman. Yeah, absolutely adored it. It's phenomenal. Go find and watch the latest Candyman film. Yeah. And Candyman, like, we didn't talk about... Candyman was one of those movies that came up during that golden age of slashers. And Candyman never got the respect it deserved. Sure. Really. Like, because Candyman was... It's not that slashers were always devoid of anything intelligent to say. They were often devoid of anything intelligent to say. But Candyman was a smart movie... At the very beginning, some of the sequels lost the thread of that a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, for those of you who don't know, the concept of Candyman is basically this black man who is, you know, obviously brutally and racially murdered and then comes back as kind of a legend murderer creature to those who decide to fuck around and find out. Um, And Candyman is fucking great. And the latest one is just quite literally like an examination of racial trauma as horror produced by Jordan Peele, who has, like, made that his his thing. Yes, and it is it is so good there. But you are correct that I ha- I've been sitting here thinking about, like, all right, when is the last time we had a really great, like, new slasher? We just got, like, after Wes Craven died, we got a new Scream film. Which is a continuation of the series, which I have not seen that Scream film yet. Yeah. I've been hesitant. I kind of want to now. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, Scream itself was this whole deconstruction of the genre. Like, I knew people who were like, no, Scream is the death of slashers because they're talking about all the rules. Right. And it's the deconstruction of the genre. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and so, like, people have been people have been trying to carry this torch. That's why I would argue, like, we, we are in the early years of the wave like of this reinvigoration of the slasher concept because you can go back to like like 2016 had a movie called don't breathe which features this homicidal blind dude who kills a bunch of home invaders and they did turn around and make that a uh, a sequel and are trying to franchise that um a lot of the Blumhouse stuff people have like tried to make an argument are slashers like happy death day um and really, like, the thing, to answer your question directly, the the newest character, the newest icon and totem in the, like, slasher idea is this character, Art the Clown, who is the killer in Terrifier 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Terrifier 2 has come out, like, the week we're recording this, and is the first movie in forever where I'm seeing people say, like, people are vomiting and passing out during the movie and it's so intense and the kills are the worst things you've ever seen and it's so fucking crazy and insane. Which is funny because people used to fucking say that about, like, Friday the 13th sequels. exactly. 
Um, so I, I enjoy that we're kind of coming back to this. I want to just wrap up. I, I could ask questions of like, oh, what's your favorite? But we, it's very clearly Halloween. We've established that. Yeah. And, and, I, and I have a little bit more uh, what I feel like is a more interesting question to ask you because we've been dancing around it since the beginning of this. What is a slasher not? Mm-hmm. Is Predator a slasher? You say no. What? Why? What is the? Is it because it is a alien? Because there's a science fiction element? I don't think that's necessarily what it is. Um, I know you're you're also going to ask me about Alien, uh, right. which is another one of my favorite movies. Um, I have always considered Alien a more of a haunt. It's a sci-fi haunted house movie. Sure. Like haunt. Like yes, it is not supernatural in the actual like sense of poltergeist or something like that. But it is designed not as a slasher where it is okay so to me a slasher requires certain factors um i will say this if there is a group of killers it's not a slasher at most you can have maybe a scream Mm. where there is more than one killer but the um monster figure that you have is a singular unknowable entity. It's important that in in the Scream movies, you don't really have both killers wearing the costume at the same time in the same place. Mm. Like, actively both chasing someone where you see both of them on screen at the same time in the costume. Sure. It's always a singular figure. Um, Which you can argue for the first Predator and for the first Alien. That's certainly not true of the sequels. No, absolutely. Um, Predator, to me, feels like it's written more as an action horror movie, and I don't think a slasher can be action. Okay. I think Alien was written with the lens of haunted house tropes. I read the John Hurt chestburster scene in Alien not as a slasher kill, but as a possession kill. I look at it, it's filmed more like that to me. To me, No, and I, I, I'm sitting here, I appreciate that, and I, I agree with you, because I also agree that, like, a haunted house film is a different thing. A, a yeah. possession thriller is a different thing. If you want a comparison, Jason X. Jason X is a Friday the 13th movie that takes place in fucking space. Yeah. Because Jason gets, like... They basically thaw him out from fucking ice on a spaceship. And over the course of the time on the spaceship, he gets, like, fucking robot parts. Yeah. Um, that is still a slasher in a sci-fi context. It, it is. Yeah. It is not filmed with the same aesthetic mindset or the same proclivities or the same lens as Alien, which I argue uses more of a haunted house framework. And I, I can jive with that. And those ones are honestly kind of easier yeah. answers for me. Yeah. But but I hear you saying there's something about the very specific formula. And yeah. if you, it's Y equals MX plus B. And yeah. if you change that to Y equals CX plus B, all yeah. of a sudden you're talking about something different. Yes. Leprechaun, I consider a slasher. Sure. I I don't, I, it's one of my least favorite of the slashers. But Leprechaun is a slasher. Yeah. Leprechaun is, and it's a slasher in the vein of a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Chucky, where you have a 
somewhat rise, wisecracking villain. In the first one, they're less wisecracky. Um, and they are after a thing. And for those of you who don't know, Leprechaun is a series of movies where a leprechaun thinks people are trying to take his pot of gold, and so he murders a bunch of people. And they're ridiculous and, pro- and honestly very bad, but fun. Yeah. Um, Hellraiser has always been an interesting one. To That's the biggest one yeah. that I'm sitting... Because, like, Pinhead is right up there as an iconic presence figure in horror. Yeah. But is Hellraiser a slasher series? And I, and I have always maintained, I have never really... Some of the Hellraiser sequels are more slasher-ish. But if we're going to look at the first Hellraiser movie, that is not a fucking slasher. That is not. Your Pinhead as a character is in all of what three scenes? Yeah, he's in like the last five minutes, honestly. And he is present as the mouthpiece for the Cenobites, which are these interdimensional portrait, portrait, torture porn creatures. Um, the real villain is what's his name's brother, right? Um, whose name I don't even remember. It's um, Andrew Robinson. It's Garrick from Star Trek. I yeah. love him. Yeah. Um, he's the villain, and he doesn't even really kill in a slasher format. Like, it's, it's, it is a horror movie. Sure. I think it is, um, I think Hellraiser has more in common with, like, Evil Dead than it does, um, Halloween or Friday the 13th. I can work with that, because I, I totally agree Evil Dead is not slashers. Incidentally, uh, Mariah and I watched the latest... Uh, Hellraiser movie. It's a complete reboot from Hulu. We watched it the day it came out. Solid. Solid. Worth your time. Not not groundbreaking, but Jamie Clayton is phenomenal and, like, worth worth watching. What I think happened with Hellraiser was Clive Barker originally wanted to do a metaphysical, mystical horror involving these torture creatures and this resurrection narrative... And then, and I don't, rem- I don't know how involved Clive Barker was with the sequels, but as the sequels continued, it became clear that fans of Hellraiser overlapped a lot with slasher fans, and because of the aesthetics of yeah. specifically Pinhead, they kind of, there was this pressure to try and create mo- a more and more slasher-like Franchise, sure, and they're and frankly, from a marketing standpoint, we're talking about studios earlier. From a studio standpoint, there is more. There are more examples for a studio exec to look at where they go, "I, we got this motherfucker in a mask, and these movies cost this much, made this much, worked with this kind of framework." That is a lot easier for them to point to than if we're using Evil Dead as our comparison. How many movies like Evil Dead are there? Not a lot. Yeah. Like, you could maybe argue the Poltergeist series, and even then, you got to stretch pretty far for that. Sure. Uh, And then you've got Hellraiser. Like, it really just... It was so uniquely itself, and then it got pigeonholed into slashers. I don't consider... I might consider Hellraiser a slasher-adjacent franchise, given some of the sequels, but Hellraiser itself is not a slasher. You know, and, and I absolutely appreciate that. So I I love this. I knew we would love this. I, I want to get to our other topic. But final thing, as, as succinctly as you can, 
what is it about the slasher that makes them so enjoyable to the people that enjoy them? And I'm just going to say really quick, we, we touched on the idea of a formula, and I think that has a lot to do with it. It is, it is a familiar thing. And at the end of the day, if you're older than 10, it's probably not actually scary, but mm-hmm. it is gory. Mm-hmm. And that can range from stupid to enjoyable and thrilling, but it's it's horror without actually being scared once you're familiar with the formula. And I will say, what's enjoyable about a slasher, and I told you I was going to do this, is the same thing that's enjoyable about rom-coms. It's, you enter into it, and you understand the structure. Sure. And maybe they will play with the structure. Maybe they'll alter it slightly. Maybe they will give you a villain who talks when all you've known before have been silent villains. Maybe they will give you characters who are functioning a little bit differently than you expect. Great thing about the Candyman reboot is that the ones who... There are so many scenes of... And this isn't a huge spoiler, but there are so many examples of black people who are getting ready to fuck around and find out in the, around the Candyman stuff, and then they just walk away and go, nope, not fucking with the spooky shit. <laughs> right. And then the white people fuck around and find out, and they find out, like... It is, it, it is a space in which you inhabit this formula and there is pleasure to be taken from the ways that it familiarly follows that and then the creativity within it. You know that Jason is going to have a dozen kills in this movie, but how is he going to do it? How is he going to just destroy these humans? Is it going to be a I slash with my machete and I slit the throat, which is classic? Or is it going to be, I'm going to tie someone up into a sleeping bag and hang them over a campfire until they slowly burn to death? Both of which are in one Friday the 13th movie. (laughs) Right. And you're just sitting here going like, okay, we're going to have a mix of this kind of thing. And the joy is in sitting within that formula and watching how it is played with, particularly by people who you know care about it. The same thing is true about rom-coms. You know the formula of a rom-com. You know there's going to be the meet-cute. You know there's going to be the moment at the like middle to two-thirds of the way through period where something happens and they break up and then they're going to have to find a way to get back together. You know the steps and the pleasure is in watching how they fulfill it. Are some better than others? Absolutely. But... If you can exist within that formula, if you can learn the formula, you can take a lot of pleasure out of that. As far as whether or not they're scary, I think a lot of that always has to do with what kinds of things actually materially affect you. I've said this on the podcast before. My sister hates Chucky. Dolls freak her out. I don't think she's ever seen Dead Silence, which is a movie that I love. Like, some people are not into clowns. Yeah. For some people, the idea of a clown slasher is the scariest fucking thing they could ever imagine. Sure. For some people, it's zombies. For some people, it's mystical stuff. I know you are not fond of possession. So there is a there are certain Nightmare on Elm Street movies that I think would fuck with you if you ever saw them. Fair, yeah. It really just kind of depends on what you yourself bring to the table. The most affecting horror movies for me tend to and this and I've said this before on the podcast the things that fuck me up in horror movies are kids and sexual assault yeah and that is why the hills have eyes which is not a slasher fucks me up as much as it does sure sure 
you, interestingly enough, don't see as much of that explicitly done in slashers as you might see in other horror movies, which might be one of the reasons why slashers work for me so well, because I don't see a lot of the stuff that turns me off. I think that's intentional, because I, I think the people who are interested in talking about that kind of sexual horror are making scarier movies. Yeah. But all I have to say, this has been exactly the conversation I hope it would have been. This has been one of our longest topics ever, which is fair. This probably should have been a double, but it wasn't. Eh. With that said, in our way, uh, I would like to now talk about something completely different. Yeah. And you want to talk to me about the U.S. Constitution? You got it. Okay. All right. I don't know if you've read my notes or not, but this is going to be fun. So, I'm going to put you on the spot briefly, dear boy. And if you're game for it, I'm going to put on a 60-second timer, and I'm going to ask you to, in that 60 seconds, enumerate everything you know about the United States Constitution. That can include its history, its content, what's, what's listed in it, whatever pops into your head. Are you cool? I'm cool. I'm setting a timer for myself. Okay. Uh, mainly so that I can be done with this as quickly as possible, because my brain does not hold on to anything from American civics. At all. Talk to me about the Constitution. The new U.S. Constitution was written by Alexander Hamilton and the other founding fathers, and I only remember that because of the goddamn musical, but it is the it is the uh, document in which, like, kind of the bylines of the rules of our country were laid out. It wasn't the Bill of Rights because that was a... That was what we were asking England for. But it was like, okay, what freedoms should people have? What freedom should people uh, of different color have? What should, how should we divide up this, this plot of land and we've got states, but we're all under the same banner? It's basically just like them, the Founding Fathers laying down, here's how we're going to America and doing so. And that has been 60 seconds. There's the timer to prove it. You cheesed that. Uh, I, I cannot tell you pretty much a goddamn thing other than Nick Cage tried to steal it. No, that was the Declaration of Independence. That's yeah. a different thing. Yeah. No, and uh, I, I appreciate you being game for that little, that little challenge there. Um, You're the civics guy between the two of us. Yes, I am. And ask me how much of that I learned in school. Yeah. That's, that's my point there. Uh, no, I appreciate that. Um, let me ask you this before I move on. Have you ever read the Constitution? Oh, God. I for mean, school I'm or sure, for any other thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I probably have. I know it has amendments. Mm -hmm. I remember what some of the amendments are. But I... Besides, like... It's the right to bear arms and the right to not incriminate yourself and... The fact that they've kept, like, messing in the margins and occasionally adding new ones. Like, I, I can't tell you much more yeah. than that. I assume you're familiar with the phrase uh, or with the sentence, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Certainly familiar with the first, like, yeah. ten words of that. That's, that's the preamble. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, they made you memorize that in school. Like... Mm. That's that's I, if you ever talk to ask your grand ask your grandmother if that well, was something she had to memorize. Don't they also make you memorize that to like pass a uh, citizenship citizenship test? Uh, there 
that is something that does get recited during the citizenship. I know it did. I don't know if it still is. Um, But no, I appreciate that. Um, Your understanding of the U.S. Constitution, I think, is pretty in line with most people's understanding of the U.S. Constitution. Sure. Um, And that's kind of what I want to talk about here, because I think most people don't really understand much about the U.S. Constitution. They just kind of go, well, this is a thing that's good. Movies have told me it's good and it's important and this, that, and the other. Okay. Um, And I want to challenge that a little bit. Perfect. So. Always down for challenging. For our basics. The most threadbare history that I can give here is that following the failure of the Articles of Confederation, which was our document initially, uh... After the, and, and the U.S.'s successful win in the Revolutionary War, a constitutional convention was called in 1787 to draft a new document for the new country. I was chosen for the constitutional convention right. to reference Hamilton. The process took four months, and it's actually a pretty interesting story if any of you are interested in learning about it. Like, I think there is legitimately, you could probably get a decent movie, Lincoln style, out of just those deliberations. I believe it. Um, I'm not going to go into that here, but in September of that year, the draft was finalized, written out on just five sheets of paper. It all fits on five sheets of paper, handwritten. Um, And then sent out for consideration by the leadership of the various new states, eventually ratified by all of them the following year in 1788. So that's where our Constitution goes into effect. Okay. Composed of a preamble, which I just read to you, seven articles, mostly concerned with the structuring of government and some of its powers, and a closing endorsement, the document was then given ten amendments, commonly referred to as the Bill of Rights. An additional 17 amendments have since passed, ranging from the sort of abolition to slavery, um, to, the ab- to the establishment of women's suffrage, to establishing and then repealing prohibition, to one that was on the table um, and pending with the U.S. Constitution for literally 202 years. That was the one to prevent members of Congress from being able to change their pay amounts while still in session. <laughs> that was the one that was pending for over two centuries. No, you're kidding. Of fucking course it was. <laughs> now... The problems I have with this. That might seem, with me just listing all of that, to be a very tiny amount to base the entirety of a government on. And I'm inclined to agree with that. Sure. This constitution is the longest established, currently enforced constitution in the world and has remained largely unchanged ever since. Now that's fascinating just to think of all of the countries that have existed since the 1400s. Yeah. (laughs) This one started in 1788. Every other country with a constitution has a more recent constitution. Interesting. They have at some point redone their constitution, some of them several times. Sure, sure. But ours is the longest continuously running one. This is not a good thing. Some people will tell you it is a good thing. They will treat it as a point of pride. Well, sure, because immediately my mind goes to the raw, raw anti-jingoism of... Or you mean jingoism? Well, but like, but like pride, like yeah. pride in, in their own country. Yeah. It's, the, it's, it's been around the longest. It's clearly the best. It's American, so it's clearly the best, and it never needed to change. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I mentioned 27 amendments to the Constitution. 
You know only four of those amendments affect anything in the original doc? Actually change anything that was written in the original doc? Hmm. There's one having to do with suing people across state lines. It changed that rule from the original doc. There's one about the congressional authority to levy taxes, adjusting that a little bit. There's one on how we elect vice presidents, because it used to be whoever got the second most votes in the presidential election right. got to be vice president, and one on the pres order of presidential succession. And that third one changed when fucking Jefferson was in office. Everything else, every other amendment is addressing stuff that was never listed in the original Constitution at all. So, in all of the years since we established this Constitution, we have only felt the need to alter four things that were in the original text. Which brings to mind how you, you see this um, depressingly less and less now, but I remember... Um, a few years back, it was a really popular talking point to talk about how the right to bear arms was kind of referring to a, like, front-loaded, you know, flintlock pistol or rifle, not a goddamn AK-47. Are you familiar with a conservative um, commentator named Matt Walsh? Yes! Okay. Fuck Matt Walsh! Fuck Matt Walsh! Um, there, I, I, There is... A, you could probably find compilations of this on YouTube, but there are so many um, versions of Matt Walsh bending over backwards, talking about gun technology of the 1700s to explain that, no, obviously the Founding Fathers would have been familiar with this primitive version of an automatic weapon. Therefore, the, the Second Amendment obviously refers to including automatic weapons. This, that, and the other. To which I say, even the most primitive machine gun wasn't around until like the fucking 1840s, so... It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it'd be hysterical if it wasn't so fucking dangerous. Sure. And, and the Second Amendment itself could be a whole separate hate, especially because I have a more nuanced take than most people where I am pro-gun but anti-Second Amendment. Because I think the Second Amendment is clearly one of the, is one of the dumbest aspects of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, and there are smarter ways to handle the fact that guns are an important and necessary thing for a population to have. But our amendment, as it is stated and subsequently interpreted, is fucking stupid. Mm. Very, very stupid. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> okay. Um. There's a long-standing pride among a certain type of American surrounding this very, very stupid document. And it requires an incredible amount of backbending hypocrisy to make it work. For example, there's a belief among a certain subset of American that the framers of this Constitution, who you said was Alexander Hamilton, um, Alexander Hamilton was part of that Constitutional conven Convention making that... Um, making all those compromises. So he was involved in the conversations. He never touched pen to paper on that except to actually be one of the signers of it. Sure. No, I mean, that's... And that's where... No, and that's that's the problem with the narratives we get. Okay. Like, I was taught that James Madison was the person who actually wrote the Constitution. Not actually true. Not actually true in the slightest. He was 
one of the main like framers and he is one of the people whose arguments were most important to it. But as far as actually putting the pen to paper on that, that wasn't him. But okay. we get but we get fed these narratives. So so do you know who did write it? Uh, I can tell you that. Um, God damn it. Let's pulling that up right here. Because <laughs> fucking Google says James Madison. <laughs> Which that seems like a problem. Which I wrote. Ah, Jacob Chalice. A man history does not fucking remember. Yeah. Jacob Chalice is the actual person who physically wrote the Constitution. Okay. Granted, physically wrote it from tons of various notes and docs and working documents all over the place. Yeah. But Jacob Chalice is the person who actually wrote the goddamn thing. Okay. Physically, physically by hand wrote it. But we don't hear that. No. We're not, not told that. Yeah. There's this belief that the framers of the Constitution were somehow brilliant and imparted unto it a pseudo-godly authority, suggesting that significant changes to it would be unacceptable and un-American. Mm. This is despite the fact that Thomas Jefferson wrote, Some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. Mm. And he suggested in his writings that the actual that the document should be rewritten from the ground up every 19 years. Which, I mean, there, there's some goddamn logic to that. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson was sitting here like, we should have a new one of these every generation. Yeah. That's, that's how this should work. Ben fucking Franklin himself, as he was, like, putting the finalizations for, for this, he said, There are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am sure that I shall never approve them. Then he would, as he was signing it, he says, you see, he said he would sign it because, quote, I expect no better and because I am not sure that it is not the best. Mm. The actual founding fathers that everyone is like, is saying with their divine hand, put this to rights and made it this inscrutable, impeccable document. They didn't even agree on it. Yeah. It was a shitload of compromises, but we don't want to acknowledge that. Aspects of it have been criticized for its entire history. Asking you to reach all the way back to that like sophomore year American history. Are you familiar with the Connecticut Compromise? Oh, God, I, I recognize that name. I forgot about it until I was researching this. Yeah. I forgot what it was called. I forgot this whole thing. I kind of remember it from American history. Okay. So there were two things that were being debated. In There were two ideas that were being debated when they were trying to come up with the structure for our governmental system. Mm. There was the Virginia Plan which suggested establishing representation based on population size of the various new states. Virginia obviously being populous as hell. And there was the New Jersey plan, which, which instead suggested that every state should get the same number of representatives. Right, right. This might sound familiar. The Connecticut Compromise was meant to split the difference, and it's why we have the Senate, where there are two representatives for every state, and we have the House of Representatives, where it is based on population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on paper, that sounds like a really smart compromise, doesn't it? Yeah. 
problem is it doesn't fucking work. And that, and that because of it, if the 26 least populous states in the country could conceivably vote in a block in the Senate, or, or could conceivably vote in a block in the House of Representatives, they could overrule everyone else. I'm sorry, I, I did this wrong. I did this backwards, taking it back. Okay. If the 26 least populous states could conceivably vote in a block in the Senate, they could overrule everybody else despite representing only 7% of the U.S. population. Okay. But that 7% has as much of a voice as the entire rest of the country. You're familiar with the term flyover states, I'm sure. Yeah. You're familiar with the discourse about how, frankly, bumpkin-like large swaths of the Midwest that are just covered with vacant farmland are. But that vacant farmland Senate representation, you, Wyoming has as many senators as California does, despite having 17% of its population. Sure. And people say, well, the House of Representatives balances that out. But does it? Because the House of Rep when there's a new law being being considered, the House of Representatives might pass a version of that law. They then send it to the Senate, and if the Senate doesn't want to approve it, it does not go to the president's desk. That does not happen. So the Senate remains a stopgap on the House of Representatives. If we just had the House of Representatives, okay, cool. There's, there, there might be an argument there for there being a certain amount of fairness in that. Now, some people will argue that means that these smaller, non-populous states don't get the proper representation. And that's the back and forth that like creates a two-sided argument of like, well, what is the most fair? Should, should populations be polled equally and, and addressed equally through these practices? Or is it more important that like just because you live in the middle of Iowa, your voice does not technically count less than somebody living in New York. Yeah. And again, the argument is that the two, that the, that the bicameral legislator, legislature balances itself out. <laughs> but the thing is, it balances itself out for positive things. Yeah. For things where it might be obvious what we should be doing, and it, and it is mutually beneficial for all parties. But if somebody wants to fuck somebody over, somebody wants to stop a piece of legislature from going through the way that it probably should, it is not that hard. And then you look at this through a contemporary context and think about the culture war shit. Think about the fact that if the most populous states, if California, if all the representation for California really, really wants to make sure that we have the ability to ensure, let's say, abortion access yeah. across the board, and Wyoming wants to fuck with that, Wyoming could absolutely fuck with that without a lot of effort, given their representation. Right. That's just one thing that has been criticized. This is to say nothing for what is for what is plainly ignored, despite being good ideas in the dock. We have, via the amendment, we, we, we have via the Sixth Amendment, the right to a speedy trial. A fair and speedy trial. That is in the language of the Sixth Amendment. But Khalif Browder, 
was held in Rikers for two years awaiting trial for allegedly stealing a backpack, a thing he did not actually do. Right. And he died in prison, or I'm sorry, in jail, waiting for his day in court. Yeah. Is that a speedy trial? No, and I mean, I'm sure this is kind of what you're touching on, but like just that specifically, all of this, this entire conversation does not account for the ability for a corrupt loophole to make anything possible or not even a loophole just corruption just just human hatred yeah to fuck with this system that is supposed to be again like we talked about so amazing that it does not need to be changed straight up we have the emoluments clause in article one of the doc something explicitly written out by those framers mm. It's the reason Jimmy Carter sold his goddamn peanut farm. Right. Because it was considered unacceptable for someone in high office to personally profit from that office. But we never did seek impeaching Donald Trump for that one, despite the fact that he was violating it from day one in office. From the very first day in office. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Trump made a couple million dollars forcing Secret Service representatives to stay in Trump Tower. And Trump Hotels. And Trump Hotels. And charging them for the full... And charging the United States government for that. Right. Now, if he wanted to be president and subsequently put all of his holdings in his company in a blind trust temporarily, that would have been acceptable. It's not like he could not have still been the business person he wanted to be, quote-unquote, once he left office. But he did not do that. Right. We did not pursue emoluments on him, despite the fact that we could have done that from day one. And emoluments is a good idea in our Constitution. Now, some people will say, well, you know, if it's a good idea in the Constitution, maybe the Constitution doesn't need amending. We just need to actually enforce this shit. Which... In some ways, yeah, would be fair. It would be. But the Constitution doesn't actually require us to do any of that. Because it puts the onus on that enforcement on the executive branch. Mm. See how this is fucked? <laughs> you yeah. see how, with a little amending, it might actually possibly work? Absolutely. We have a Supreme Court now with justices arguing that no rights without, quote-unquote, a historical precedence, and I am quoting Samuel Alito with that, right. should be considered val valid under constitutional law. And we pretend to argue... We pretend that arguments about 18th century military weaponry should govern our considerations of the Second Amendment to go back to that what Matt Walsh issue. Yeah. Matt Walsh digging into weird archives of this random-ass person who filed a patent for an early version of a repeating mechanism gun that he argues would have absolutely been understood to this particular founding father who was there at the convention. Right. So clearly that means that they understood that when they were framing this particular amendment. We bend ourselves... And I'm going to use we very particularly because Matt Walsh is an American, as are you, as am I, as are most of our listeners. We as Americans bend ourselves backwards to go, this document that all of us learned about, that we all, we all, we all watched Hamilton and really liked the Constitution scene. We all 
my parents had to learn about. Yeah. When they went to go do their citizenship test. My dad owns more than one copy of the U.S. Constitution. And I guarantee you, I, I, granted, I don't know how much he's studied it since, but he knows more about that document than I do. He knows more about it than you do. He knows more, he knows more about it than most of you who are listening to this. Part of that is because of who he is as a person, and part of that was because he took the fucking citizenship test. But the point is, we, don't, we barely understand this document. But we venerate it. Yeah. We treat it like it's this magnificent thing. But really, when you actually dive into it, it is a handful of articles delineating certain powers. It tells us we need to have a Supreme Court and federal courts. doesn't say much about what they do, which is where the concept of judicial review comes from. And I could talk about judicial review in a whole separate topic. And I don't necessarily treat judicial review as a love or a hate, because a lot of goods come out of judicial review, a lot of bads come out of it. But the conceit that the Supreme Court are the supreme interpreters of our Constitution is a flawed premise. What the actual Constitution itself delineates is stuff like a bicameral legislature, that the president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, that Congress should pass laws and collect taxes and perform the census. Like, this is the shit that's actually in it. You said that you thought that the Constitution guaranteed rights. Constitution doesn't guarantee shit for rights. <laughs> sure. It's, it's all about how to structure a government, and then we just added a whole bunch of shit on top of it that is not constitutional, though it probably should be. Yeah. We think our Bill of Rights is hot shit. I remember an old Carlin bit where he talked about the various Bill of Rights of different countries, and he's like, this country has seven, this country has 27, this country has 18. What makes our Bill of Rights so fucking special? We like 10 because it's this nice fucking round number. But our Bill of Rights... Doesn't do a whole lot. Our Bill of Rights, we don't even enforce the way that we're supposed to. And we haven't really done a good job of delineating what happens when we don't. Schoolhouse Rock tried to tell us. <laughs> that was just to make Alex laugh. Um, <laughs> I know I've, I've kind of just devolved into screaming and ranting about this. but really well, it deserves it. I, yeah. I do think so. So my end point with this is... If there is a real hate, like, I, yes, I hate this document. I think it's a stupid, outdated document. Do we need a constitution? Yes. We absolutely need foundational, highest law documents. And, is, and there is a risk to the idea of rewriting, like, if you're going to go off of the Jeffersonian idea of rewriting it every 19 years, or do it more often, do it every, I don't know, 50 years, you run some risks there. Because what happens, whoever is in power at that time is likely going to put into that concept whatever they think is the right thing at the time. We've learned from our Supreme Court that can be dangerous. Yeah. Whatever the flavor of the government is at that particular time. But this current system ain't working either. Because our Constitution as it is right now does not address our proper needs. And... The idea of it should never be changed, that this singular document that came out in 1788 is the perfect framework for all of eternity. I mean, not to be disrespectful, but it's like people who argue that biblical rules 
apply perfectly in contemporary context. And they just plain don't. And if you've ever worn blended fabrics in your shirt, you should fucking understand that. Right. I'll take it a little differently. It's it's the thing of the Matt Walsh's of the world are the kind of people who would have been in power and and probably like benefited from the way this all worked when our founding fathers created the country. And it's a very handy tactic to drill into people's minds that this is good and does not need to change because that way the same type of person who has been in power, I'm not even going to make it racial, but you could, the same type of person who has been in power can stay in power this way and why would the people who are in power ever want to make it harder to hold on to that power and influence and money that comes along with it in the world and so it just becomes this it's it's the same pro it's the same reason communism doesn't actually work <laughs> because no matter what the people in power will always seek to stay in power <sighs> except for you get a jimmy carter sure and, and history hated him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you ain't wrong. So, all this to say, when you encounter somebody who is a constitutional literalist, who defends the Constitution as something immutable and perfect, um, shatter their world a little bit. Yeah. Principles over documents, over tradition, over bullshit. You want to get to this question? Yeah, with that, I'm going to lead us into our final topic, our relationship question. You laid out the format, so I'll be happy to read it. I found this on relationships.txt. Husband sniffing paint remover is the title. For starters, he bought the stuff at a sex store, but it's clearly labeled nail polish remover and says not to sniff. But the guy at the store told him it's great for heightening your orgasm, so here we are. I am personally not okay with this. I know it kills brain cells and deprives your brain of oxygen. However, I'm not the one in control of what he does. He's a big boy. Recently, he's been bringing it out and I show clear discomfort with it. It stinks and it kills the mood to think he needs to get high to come. Tonight, for instance, he was taking a while, sniffed this crap, and was done in a minute. Does anyone else have experience using this stuff? He is extremely against anything else. For instance, when we met, I would smoke weed sometimes, and he wanted me to stop right away. He thinks it's as bad as heroin. I told him last weekend he might as well just smoke a joint. At least he wouldn't have to do it every two minutes to get a little high. I've read that sniffing glue is pretty dangerous, but what's everyone else's experience? Okay, so we need a name. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember characters who huff stuff to get high in media. I know Charlie Day does that, but we've also, like, talked about Charlie Day before um, and The Waitress, I think. Yeah. Hmm. I have one that's not a one-to-one, -one, but it's a little bit cheeky. That's fair. Um, you're a Scrubs fan, right? Indeed. So... There is a plot line in Scrubs where Turk finds out that uh. Uh, when Carla, as he and Carla are trying to get pregnant, he finds out that when she is mad at him, right. the sex is really, really good. And he gets addicted to insulting her to make her mad. 
so at the times where she is ovulating because she will definitely have sex because she wants to have a baby but the sex is really good but she's fucking mad at him right yeah. so i could see this being carla reyes of scrubs talking to turk i am absolutely down for it the the idea that these are medical professionals is a fun little non-canonical add-on sure christopher christopher you only call me Christopher when you're mad or when we're having sex. Baby, are you mad when we're having sex? Sometimes. Um, so what, what would you like to go first, dear boy? I would be happy to go first. Now, um, I'm going to be upfront with um, one thing here. I, I have a little bit of experience with inhaling some substances I shouldn't have. Uh, not a lot, mind you. It was not my uh, preferred means of... Sure getting fucked up, but it was something that I have a little experience with. I will tell you, um, sniffing nail polish remover, especially if it's done habitually and over a long period of time, is likely to cause what's called painter syndrome. Painter syndrome, uh, effectively, it, the idea of it kills brain cells is a misnomer. They used to say the same thing about alcohol. It does not kill brain cells. That's mm. a very, um, kind of reductive way of looking at it. What it does is cause nervous system issues. Oh. So okay, okay. people with painter syndrome tend to have walking problems, speech problems, and severe, severe memory loss. It literally degrades the connections between your nervous system and your brain. That is why you should not sniff paint nail polish remover or paint or glue. Because it destroys your fucking neural connections to your nervous system. And if your husband continues to do this, if Turk continues to do this, um, he gonna have some real severe neurological problems. Now, um, to get kind of more into the weeds of this, uh, I highly recommend you do mention that to him. It does sound like Turk need some kind of sexual crutch. Now, we always recommend therapy, and sex therapy is always a very wonderful thing. Absolutely. Obviously, that's not always available. And here's the thing. It may not even be fully necessary if what he honestly just needs is a little bit of a pick-me-up. Now, um, obviously there are pills for that sort of thing you have your viagras and your cialises and i'm pretty sure you can get a doctor to give you a prescription to that without much issue and most insurances will cover it because we are a very very sexist medical system indeed um there's also shit you can just buy online um blue chew is a chewable viagra that you can buy just online over the counter um, be careful with it because if you use it too much, it can actually cause erectile dysfunction. You can become dependent on it. Mm. But um, I'm going to be honest, it's what porn stars largely use because it is re readily accessible. And again, if you don't abuse it, it can do everything that you need it to do. So if he needs a little bit of a crutch, I might look into something like that. So I actually want to stop you right there. Um, reading the question, it seems like... He doesn't necessarily have issue with erectile dysfunction or anything like that. It, it sounds like what she clearly says is he, he has an issue achieving orgasm, which I wonder if it becomes so much more of a mental thing. Oh, interesting. There. 
Um, it, it sounds like he doesn't have any problem achieving or maintaining an erection, hmm. um, but he feels like, Turk feels like he needs to not be in his mind hmm. to climax. Interesting. Which, that that's fascinating to me, and, and especially like Carla references the idea of maybe using a safer uh, mental inhibitor such as weed, um, and and there being some argument there about like he doesn't want to smoke weed because he doesn't like it, but he thinks sniffing glue or nail polish remover is the answer. That's just a fascinating bit of mental hypocrisy, which I, I do think like I would actually recommend some just straight up therapy to get to the bottom of this. Of like, why don't you trust your partner enough to yeah. go out on a, on a limb for them? And why are you so sure that what you need is this thing to take you out of your mind? That's a really interesting notion. And I wonder if he is someone who's so straight edge that he, like, never even fucked with weed. Indeed, thinks weed is as bad as heroin, which it plainly isn't. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there is something to... Oh, well, okay, this, this person recommended it. Let me try it. Oh, my God, this has opened up a lot for me. Like, you and I have both known people who, um, for a period of their lives, like, throughout their youth and adolescence, never really partook in any particular substances and then started drinking or smoking weed later in life and maybe because they never had that period of time where they went overboard as youth, maybe because they probably should have avoided it before, or maybe just because they don't have the tools for actually properly contending with that dopamine and serotonin response, they go way too hard on it. Um, maybe it's something along those lines because he just doesn't have that experience with getting fucked up. There's, there's an argument here that it's a chemical dependency. There's an argument here that it is a psychological thing to deal with... Um, a very common sexual issue that I think we do talk about somewhat with women and very, very little with men yeah. of getting in your head yeah. in sexual contexts. I still agree with the word crutch. I just, I, I think more a psychological crutch than a sexual yeah. one. Yeah. No, and I can see that, but if it is a sexual one, that's a matter of doing a little bit of, not even a lot, a little bit of work on yourself just to kind of figure out what it is that grounds you in a sexual context, that gives you connection and allows you to not let your mind wander in this way um, or, or have those particular itch issues. I'm much more concerned with what I see as Turk's lack of just even listening to Carla. Yeah. You know, uh, Carla says that she shows clear discomfort, and I'm sure has had a conversation about how, like, hey, when you bring out the nail polish remover in the bedroom, like, it really smells awful. It totally takes me out of the mood, and, and Turk doesn't seem to care. Yeah, that that's a red flag. Yeah, Turk listening to random guy from the sex store and like first of all shame on that sex store worker for saying like hey th this is this will get you there when it's clearly like fucking nail polish remover yeah and and will actually absolutely give you painter syndrome if yeah. you get if you, if you go too far with it i mean so i i think the biggest thing is like it's it 
this this presents itself as a sexual issue. It sounds like the sex is fine, if not in need of you know the the deep work for Turk and the salve that you talked about. Yeah. More than anything, though, Turk needs to understand that he is straight up ignoring his partner in a couple of crucial ways that are huge red flags. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point. I would say. Carla, if you're if you're trying to take something away from this, the biggest things are. I, I would definitely say first and foremost, take Andy's advice as far as just pointing out, yo, this is fucking things up for me, and if our sex life exists at my expense, we have a problem. Yeah. And if for and if you consider removing the nail polish remover, which is poisoning you, to be at your expense you have a problem of a substance variety. Now, maybe that's coming from a psychological issue. Maybe that's coming from a sexual issue. Either way, it is not... This is not the right move here. No. This is not the way that things should be, and you need to address this. You got to replace it with something else. Maybe it's something therapy-related, Maybe it is, um, you know, finding a less damaging alternative that you can still take or use. Um, either way, it should definitely not be something that completely fucks up your partner. Yeah. And fucks up you in this, in this very, very, like, it's a danger, in a very dangerous way, dude. Yeah, I mean, even if it was like, oh, my boyfriend needs to smoke a joint to come that would already be a like minor red flag but it's no my boyfriend needs to huff nail polish remover to come that's a problem yeah like we couldn't write you could if you if you heard that in a comedy like a stoner comedy you would be like that's a fucked up person indeed so we don't want turk to be fucked up we don't want his relationship to carla to be fucked up in this way um, you know, as usual, we're going to kind of throw this into the void as we do with relationship questions. But, you know, maybe, dear listener, there's something you can take away from this. Um, in this instance, I kind of hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're helpful, we're glad to be helpful. Um, if you have a relationship question that does not involve huffing an illicit substance, but you would still like to hear our uh, take on so that we can be directly helpful to you, we're always happy to get those questions. You can send them to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll listen. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, see the stuff we're tweeting about. Uh, we, you, you, it may or may not be swimming in Simpsons gifs at this point. We have no idea. But um, you can follow us there. Keep up with new episodes. Send us your questions. Whole shebang. That's right. You can follow me, Andy Boel, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. You can follow my Warhammer painting journey at Andy's underscore minis. And you can find my other podcast that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, Cult Fiction, which is a movie review show. But, spoilers, I do not think slasher films are cult, so we're probably not going to watch very many of those. 
And you can find cult fiction everywhere you can find love-hate relationship. I find your reasons for not thinking slashers could be cult to be... Mm. If it's a franchise, it is too popular to be cult. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, chess.com, and LieChess at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies.